This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Coronavirus changed forever. Presented by Balance of Nature. Welcome to the CBS special Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. Dr. Tara Narula is CBS News senior medical correspondent and assistant professor of cardiovascular medicine at the Zucker School of Medicine in New York City. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. There is so much to talk about. Let's start on the front line with our health workers. Many of them are not well paid. I have seen EMT workers who have no personal protective equipment, and many, and this is hard to believe, but actually true, have no health benefits. So if they get sick while treating or transporting people who are sick, they're left high and dry. Generally, what is going on with our health workers? How well are they reacting to this? Yeah, you know, for me, this has been one of the most difficult and personal parts of this whole story. Uh, There's so many sad and difficult things to tell, but being a healthcare provider and seeing what my colleagues have been going through, it's really been uh, heartbreaking. You know, in the beginning, we were one of the first to really report on the fact that our frontline workers, doctors, nurse practitioners, nurses, PAs, were out there fighting this battle without the proper protective equipment. And, you know, it's, it's, it is something that we take personally as an oath to help others and heal others. But, you know, for many, when they're asked to do this without being protected themselves and potentially risking infecting their family members, whether that's their spouse, their partner, their children, their elderly parents, it's like a whole nother level of added um, difficulty, not to mention the risk of, of getting infected themselves. I know you talked to a doctor who himself spent days on a ventilator. What has this been like for him? You know, he was very um, positive and encouraging and and spoke, you know, highly of the care that he received and was so thankful that he came out on the other end okay. But, uh, you know, I do think for anybody who becomes a patient, and at some point we all become a patient, it is uh, a very eye-opening experience to, you know, be unable to breathe and be told we're going to have to put a breathing tube in. Uh, It's scary. And as we talked about in the piece, it's not just surviving the critical illness, but there are potentially long-term issues that come up in this very vulnerable population after they are discharged from the ICU. Uh, One of the doctors we spoke to said it's almost like thinking that the next phase is rehab. So imagine if you had had heart surgery and then you got through the surgery, but the next steps were rehabilitation. It's a similar concept of even though people may be getting out of the ICU, Uh, they need to be followed closely. They need to get stronger. They need to be monitored for damage to other organ systems. And one of the other things we touched on is the psychological trauma that comes from being in the critical care unit. We see that with our patients that we treat for heart attacks and strokes, for example. Many of them are then subject to subsequent depression, uh, PTSD. So it's not just the actual COVID and how it affects the lungs, but there there is the potential for it affecting other organ systems, whether that's the kidneys, the liver, the heart, 
or the brain um, or the psychological system. So you get this and survive it, but is that really it? Do I have antibodies to prevent me from getting this again? Here's what we heard at a World Health Organization briefing from Dr. Maria Vankrakov, who is an American infectious disease epidemiologist. Some individuals had a strong antibody response. Whether that antibody response actually means immunity is a, is a, very, is a separate question. Um, in that same study, they found some patients who had no detectable antibody response, and they found some individuals who had a very high uh, response. So right now, the, the information is mixed. We need much more information from recovered patients. It's one of the most interesting topics right now uh, is this idea of antibodies and antibody testing and what that really means. And we've talked to several experts who, you know, basically said that a couple things. We, we need to make sure that we have validated and appropriate tests because what we don't want is to be testing for COVID-19 and picking up antibodies, for example, to some of the other coronaviruses that cause colds and telling people that they're immune when in fact they're not immune. Uh, we also don't want to be getting false positives uh, and telling people that they're positive when they really were negative. So we need accurate tests, and that's something that's going to help us going forward. In addition to that, we need to understand exactly what it means if you have those antibodies. And this is something else that many of the experts have discussed, which is just because you test positive on an antibody test, how protected you are from those antibodies, how immune you are is a whole separate question. So it may be, for example, that people who had a severe pneumonia and got very sick develop a much stronger, more potent antibody response, they are more protected. Whereas the people who've had more mild or asymptomatic infections may have some immunity, but may not be as robust. So these are things that we will learn over time as we watch and test more. Uh, and then the other big question is how long are we immune for? And, you know, the experts have said, when you look at diseases like SARS or MERS, they give us some indication that the immunity is long lasting, at least for years. Um, but we really don't know because COVID-19 has only been with us for several months. So that's something else that we're going to have to watch closely is how long does the immunity actually last? So lots of questions around antibodies and immunity. Uh, but a fa fascinating field. Doctor, a lot of doctors are making impossible choices right now. I know some people had patients in their family where doctors have used certain drugs. Other doctors have said, no, it's unproven or it's part of a test going on. There's the question of who you use ventilators for. And this was another topic that I was personally very interested in, you know, being a physician is this issue of how do you really decide if you're sitting there faced with to patients who's going to get the ventilator. You know, we, again, take an oath to help the patient in front of us and potentially now would be transitioning to a phase where we're trying to help the greater public good and not just focused on one single patient. And it's kind of a difficult transition for physicians. It's not a position we are used to be in or a way that we are used to thinking. Um, thankfully, there are people who've thought about this and um, we spoke to several uh, individuals who are creating guidelines uh, out of Pennsylvania. These, these doctors work with Pittsburgh and, and Penn and sending them out to hospitals and networks across the country so that doctors don't end up being in that difficult position. They are creating pathways and, and, and recommendations for hospitals to use that make it fair and equitable and just. And one of the things they have strongly recommended is the use of something called a triage committee meaning that it's not the doctor that's taking care of the patient in front of them that's making this impossible choice, but rather the doctor is removed and it is a separate doctor who's not the actual doctor for the patient, along with a nurse, along with maybe some other people involved 
who are looking at the whole picture and really assessing overall who stands to benefit more. Um, so it, it's a very, it is a shift in how we think about caring, but it's akin almost to how you would care for people on a battlefield. Um, and that's one whole issue. I think you raised the other question of drugs and, and therapies. And, you know, again, we find ourselves in uncharted territory. We like to have clinical trials to test drugs out, to know what works, what doesn't work, what are the side effects. And we're just scrambling to help people with whatever we have. Um, at the same time, we, we do have to be cautious because drugs do have side effects. And the last thing we want to do is treat people with something that's not quote unquote proven and cause more harm. So all difficult dilemmas that we're facing right now. As a final thing, it's been difficult to figure out just who lives and who dies through this. Age, yes, can be a factor, obviously, lung condition, heart condition, diabetes, general health like obesity. But then we have some young people who get sick and die. Are we able to make any sense of what's going on here? You know, it's definitely something that's interesting and that we're going to need to follow. Uh, As you mentioned, what we do know is that those individuals who are older, who have these chronic underlying conditions, uh, are really the ones that are taking the biggest hit. But we do see younger individuals who are otherwise healthy suffering as well. Um, One of the leading theories is that there may be genetic differences, genetics that basically make a younger, healthier person maybe more susceptible than another person. Um, Lots of our healthcare workers have become sick. And one of the thoughts there may be that they're seeing a higher viral load. So because they're taking care of patients, they're doing procedures, there's a lot of aerosolized droplets that they may just be exposed to more of the viral particles. And that's why they're getting sicker, even though they may not themselves have a lot of underlying health conditions. So still a lot of questions. Uh, Another big one being children. You know, why is it that children seem to be spared a lot of the severe illness that we're seeing in an older population? One other final interesting thing, men. Men seem to be more affected than women. One of the thoughts there may be that hormones, things like estrogen, are more protective in women, uh, and that's why we see this difference uh, between genders. So lots of things that need to be sorted out that I'm sure will come to light as we move forward. But, uh, you know, I think nobody is... uh, nobody's free completely. And it was important to get out there that just because you are young and healthy does not mean that you cannot get sick from COVID-19. And so that's why we've been strongly promoting that everybody needs to take seriously all of the social distancing that we've been talking about um, and all of the recommendations. Dr. Tara Narula is CBS News Senior Medical Correspondent. Thank you so much for being with us. You're listening to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. Welcome back to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. Here's what we now know about the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which it now seems like we've known about forever, but in reality, it's been a matter of weeks. You can get it without immediately showing symptoms. You can shed virus without yet being sick yourself. And as much as many people were saying this would be no big deal, it was and is, all from something just a few short months ago we had no idea even existed. Alice Stockton Rossini is a reporter for WOR Radio in New York, who, like so many reporters, was sent to cover the story and inform us all about it, and like Chris Cuomo and others, herself became the story. But far earlier into it, and with more tragic consequences than anyone early on could have imagined. Alice, I know you've been ill. How are you now? I'm good, Gil. I'm good. Okay, Alice, you were sent to cover one of the first COVID-19 cases in New York. What was the story? I was covering the first 
case, there was a, a lawyer in Manhattan who lived in Westchester County, and he tested positive, I believe, at the end of February. And it wasn't long before we found out where he lived, we found out what synagogue he went to, and they decided to set up a, a small containment area around the synagogue and, uh, and around some homes uh, near the synagogue. And so I was sent up there to talk to people about how they felt about this containment area in which you might have kids who go to school outside the containment area, so their schools were open. You might work outside the containment area, so you had to go to work, but maybe you had another kid and a husband who worked inside the containment area or went to school inside the containment area. So that was kind of the story, like, what are we trying to accomplish here when you can move in and out of the containment area? And it was still very early, and we were still wondering, are we making a big deal about nothing? I mean, isn't this kind of crazy? But no, this is scary. You know, we have to do something. And probably like most reporters in most days, this seems like just another day in life. Honestly, Gil, all I could think about was my mother's 90th birthday party. And every year we have a party for her. She's in the church choir. I'm in the church choir. It's usually at my house. This year, we're going to have it at the church, no matter what. And I go out and buy food and mimosas and invite everybody at the church. And we all go to church, and it was that Sunday, that was the first Sunday that the pastor said, we're going to, we're not going to share the peace, we're going to, we're going to bump elbows, we're going to do fist bumps, we switched up the communion, no sharing the wine. It was just the very beginning, and I honestly, we sang happy birthday to her, uh, about 25 people came back to the party. It was about a, an hour long. We sang songs. We had a great time. And the next day, my mother got sick. Since you had no symptoms of anything whatsoever at that point, did you make the connection between the story you just covered and your mom getting sick? You know, she has some health issues. And we thought, okay, maybe it's her diverticulitis. You know, we'll keep an eye on it. And the next thing I know, about four days later, I have a fever. And I, I felt like I had a cold, but it's it's spring, you know, I have allergies and I have a cold, I have the chills. I go to the WebMD in Hoboken and that's where I live a couple days a week because I work in Manhattan. And he said, you know, you, you don't have the flu, but I can't give you a test. We get two tests a day. And he said, you're a reporter and I'm telling you, you see all those people in the waiting room, you see all those people walking around outside, every single one of them needs to be tested. I'm telling you, this thing is going to explode if I were you, I'd get out of Hoboken. You know, where do you live full time? I said, I live in South Jersey full time on an island. And he said, that would be a good place for you to go. All right. So you try to get tested. You can't. Your mom is sick. You feel like maybe you have a cold. Neither of you know for sure what you have. What happens next? Two days after that, I felt like somebody hit me in the head with a two by four. I didn't have congestion. I didn't have the traditional things that they were looking for in order to test you. I felt like I had a sinus headache. I felt like maybe I had a sinus infection with the flu. And I really, you know, just 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 stayed at home, kept inside. My husband was still going to work. Next thing you know, my mother is, she's got, she's vomiting. She has diarrhea. Again, these are not considered signs at that time of the coronavirus. My sister takes her to the hospital. She stays in the hospital for three days. 
she tests positive for corona and i i i i just lost it and i thought how is it possible that she's testing positive for corona now it's not like you shook hands or something with somebody you knew was sick the way this can have somebody shedding virus days before you have any symptoms at all is insidious and this all escalates for you pretty dramatically and horribly several people at church contracted the virus several people at church and i thought oh, oh is did did I did I bring this here? Then our next door neighbor, who I've known since I was twelve years old, my mother's best friend, she goes to the hospital the day after my mother. She's dead. Another member of the congregation is dead. A reporter calls me up, who I've known since she was a little girl, and she's like, "Alice, I really think you know. Why don't we talk about this? I'll do the story in a compassionate way. How are you feeling?" I said, "I'm feeling awful. I'm feeling like." I how else would this virus get to this island? I'm 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 horrified that that I might have somehow been responsible. And yeah, we need to get the word out that this thing passes very easily, that social distancing is a reality that, you know, it can happen to you. The thing is, because there were few available testing kits, though you were blaming yourself and others have blamed you, in fact, you're never going to know if you transmitted this to others or not. After my mom got better, we were talking and I was showing her the articles and I was sharing with her what happened and I had to tell her that her best friend died. And she said, Alice, I was at the Philadelphia Flower Show the weekend before. I could have brought it to the island. And the message should be... Not to blame one person, but to realize anybody can get it. Anybody can spread it. It spreads very easily. You don't know what the immune system of the person next to you is like. You don't know. You have to take the precautions. And we live in a resort area where spring is huge. And that weekend, there were people coming down to the island. They weren't wearing masks. They weren't wearing gloves. They weren't social distancing. They were acting like everything was fine down here. And it was like, what I like am I in the am I in a Twilight Zone movie? What's going on here? Like this stuff is real. So I I I I continued to come forward and other news outlets would call me. And while you're trying to get the message out to save others from going through what has happened to your family and friends, you still have to deal with everything going on at home. It's been just one just one hit after another. My sister, my brother-in-law, my brother, his wife, all tested positive. We're all very sick. My son, my 28-year-old son, who helped when my mother came home from the hospital because they didn't tell us when they released her from the hospital that there would be no nurses coming to our home to help us. She could barely walk. She was extremely weak. She had 14 medications she had to take. And we said, okay, we'll get somebody to help us. Well, nobody's coming to your house if you're COVID positive. And so we found out the hard way. And luckily we have a family and we, we put it all together and we took care of her and my son took care of her. He tested negative. This thing is just so unpredictable in terms of symptoms, in terms of whether you're shedding virus before you know you have it, in terms of whether you're still shedding virus after you've gotten better. As you tell your story to try and warn people and expose yourself in the process People start sending hate messages to you on social media, even calling you a murderer. I found so many people are so afraid. 
and know so little about this virus that they'd rather find someone to blame. But when you find someone to blame, then you're no longer taking responsibility. So if you were at that party and you want to blame me for bringing it to the party or my mother, you still have to be responsible and you still have to Talk to all the people that you saw the day before, the day after, the offices that you were in. When you go to the store, you got to put the mask on. You got to put the gloves on. You can't just look for someone to to blame and then just go on with your life as nothing happened. Two weeks ago, we find out my brother-in-law, who was not at the party, 56 years old. My parents are 90 and 92. And my brother-in-law, 56 years old, winds up in the hospital on a ventilator, Montefiore, and he's dead four days later. So much of this in your story and so many others goes back to the fact that even though government officials, including the president, were saying anyone who wants a test can get one, you can't. So when you first have symptoms, nobody knows whether they have any of the things that are happening as usual, colds, the flu, allergies, or they have COVID-19. Well, here's the thing that's frustrated me from the beginning is that if you are if you're just at the beginning of the virus and you're feeling you feel like you have a cold, you don't feel bad. I was still working out. I was still doing what I do a million things a day. That's when you need to get tested. That's when you're passing that virus around and there aren't any tests. And if you don't meet the criteria, you don't get a test. But in South Jersey, there were no tests. There just were no tests. It didn't matter if you met the criteria. There were no tests. So you only got tested if you went to the hospital and you were having breathing problems. And that's the other thing, Gil. None of us had breathing problems. Not one of us had the congestion in the chest that everybody talks about. That's the, you know, when you get that, you end up on the ventilator. That is not the end of Alice's story, though. Far from it. There's more to come on coronavirus. Change forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus, Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking to radio reporter Alice Stockton Rossini about how she got the coronavirus, possibly while covering a story about it, and also may have passed it on to her family and friends, in some cases, fatally. The important thing to remember from her story is it can happen and you have no way of knowing it. That, and even if you suspect you have it, getting tested isn't always easy. If you are, if you're just at the beginning of the virus and you're feeling, you feel like you have a cold, you don't feel bad. I was still working out. I was still doing what I do a million things a day. That's when you need to get tested. That's when you're passing that virus around and there aren't any tests. And if you don't meet the criteria, you don't get a test. But in South Jersey, there were no tests. There just were no tests. It didn't matter if you met the criteria. There were no tests. So you only got tested if you went to the hospital and you were having breathing problems. And that's the other thing, Gil. None of us had breathing problems. Not one of us had the congestion in the chest that everybody talks about. The thing that's important about people not attacking those who come forward to say, I have it, and maybe I unknowingly passed it on, is... We need people like you to be able to do that so those they did come into contact with know to be on the lookout as tests become more available and get themselves tested and take all possible precautions. Exactly. And that was the other thing I was, you know, early on, I was like, you know, we all have to tell. We all have to tell. We all have to talk about this. You, you, you can't keep it to yourself. It's important to let people know where you've been, what you've been doing, who you might have been in contact with, you know. I don't, I, I, I think people are just afraid. 
people are afraid. They don't, nobody wants to believe, even now. Like, it feels like we've been dealing with this for a really long time, but it hasn't. But I really think people are afraid and they don't know what else to do. So we'll just find somebody that we can, we can just heap everything on. And the, the hate and the vitriol, it's just not doing anybody any good. We have to come together and we have to figure this out. And it, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how this is going to pan out. I mean, I don't know. Do you have any, you know, feeling like where will we be next week, Gil? Let's talk about your son, Alice. He's 28, same age as my son almost uniquely in your family. Somehow he did not even get the SARS-CoV-2 virus, much less develop COVID-19. So he's surviving while his favorite uncle died. And people might think that's good news for him, but it also carries a burden. How's he doing? He is living like a hermit. Today, his dad finally was clear on quarantine. He's clear to go back to work. He had been living in our downstairs. We have doors that separate the kitchen from the living room, and then we have two bedrooms. He was living in that area of the house. He had a refrigerator. He had a place where he, uh, like a toaster oven and a microwave, and he had plastic over the doors, and he had them taped, and he wouldn't come close to us. And the hardest thing is, you know, he lost his uncle, his uncle didn't have children, so his nephews were everything. And there's no hugs. And like, he's standing at the door, and he's kind of looking at the door, and we're looking at him. We're like, we're going up to the Bronx because Uncle Sergio didn't make it. And, you know, he was devastated. And now he is, honestly, Gil, he tested negative, And he said to us today, I wish I tested positive. I wish I'd been through it. I wish I got it. Because then I'd know for some length of time, I'd be immune. I would be immune. He wishes he had it because being negative, he doesn't know how to go back into the world now. I'm clear. His father's clear. Most of our family's clear, but he still has to go out. He's a builder. He's got to go out and he's got to work and he's got to deal with clients. And he he's, you know, doesn't know what to do. And he, he's fearful and I, I think, I, you know, we're just trying to reassure him that most Americans are in the same position as he is. They haven't had it. They don't, you know, they don't even know whether they're positive or negative. He knows he's negative. We have the social distancing. We have the masks. We have the gloves. We know we have to keep our clothes clean. We know there's no hugging. And just try to be vigilant and we have to live, Gil, and, and he's got to live. He's a young man. He's got to live. We have to live and somehow find normalcy within this extremely abnormal world that we're living in now. Alice, thank you for doing this. It is important people hear not just the stories of how this illness affects the people who get it, but all of their family and friends so they understand just what dealing with this is like. Thanks for giving me the opportunity, Gil, and thanks for doing these shows. These are so important right now. You are making it very clear the importance of radio and the power of radio, and I really appreciate that. Alice Stockton Rossini is a radio reporter in New York City. You're listening to Coronavirus Changed Forever. 
from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. One thing we need to talk about is how we are feeling, and that is not just a matter of sad or happy. There are people who, even recovering from a life-or-death struggle, suffer depression, even post-traumatic stress syndrome. Psychologists nationwide report people having nightmares and struggling not just with uncertainty about now, but with many jobs possibly never coming back, struggling with fears about their future. Dr. Jennifer Hartstein is a child, adolescent, and family psychologist in New York City. Many of you have seen her on TV, and she is a Yahoo mental health contributor. Dr. Jen, good to have you with us. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. We could do an hour about each and every item that we're going to go through here, but let's start with something basic. The idea that out of nowhere, our assumptions about our lives, our jobs, and our safety are thrown into chaos. And how does that affect people? It is going to affect people in great ways. You know, I think there's safety in the numbers of us that are affected. So it's very validating that we're all experiencing this together. And at the same time, we're all in a place of anxiety and nervousness and worry in a way we've never really been on this level. So I think there's so much uncertainty and things changing so much day to day that everybody's just on edge and you don't have to have a diagnosable mental illness to be on edge. All of us are experiencing it in different ways. People who have had the disease, I guess a lot of other people think, well, they should be at ease. But we know that people who have survived potentially fatal diseases, conditions, accidents, whatever, often suffer depression afterwards. And are we seeing that yet? You know, I, I don't know if we're seeing it entirely. And I think the truth is, Gil, it's too early to tell on some levels. I think there's a lot of relief. Um, and then the worry comes back because just because I'm okay doesn't mean that my friends are going to be okay or my families are going to be okay or we still don't know whether or not there could be a recurrence of this. We believe no, we just don't know. So I think the unknown still creates a sense of uncertainty and for many of us, a sadness in like what we are losing versus what's to come. And because we, we can't predict it, we're just kind of floating in that emotional roller coaster. People react to all this so differently. For you, for psychologists that are working online now because you can't have somebody in the office, we have Zoom, FaceTime, Skype, Google Meet. It seems to work for many people, but I would think for some, it might just underscore that feeling of being separate and alone. Yes. And I, I think that that's a really important point. You know, one of the things that we're seeing is the level of isolation. And for those of us who are in the field, we are working virtually and, and it's great, but but not, I don't think it takes the place of tele, you know, of, of in-person relationships. And it doesn't take the place of being in my office and me being able to see the whole person, not just kind of their chest and their head. And, and we're missing out on things like touch of other people, which we know triggers oxytocin, which is a feel-good hormone. And all of these really important things that that physical connection gives us, we're lacking right now. And that does add to that sense of worry and anxiety and depression that people are experiencing. The psychology of those who may have been the transmitter of this disease to somebody they love. How do we live with that? Especially if it proves fatal, especially for people who may have taken chances not believing this was as serious as it turned out to be, or financially just felt they had to go back to work and took chances. How do you deal with that? You know, survivor's guilt is real, right? And and if I am someone who had it and then inadvertently, I don't think anybody's doing it on purpose. You know, I don't think this is a I, I knew I had this and I went and I infected other people. And we know stories from years ago where those kinds of things did happen with sexually transmitted diseases and stuff. I think that it because it's so silent and so asymptomatic for so many, it can be such a silent move. And 
And we do have that guilt that comes with it. So we have to check whether or not our guilt is reasonable and real and and kind of work through that for ourselves and really kind of say like it wasn't intentional I didn't mean to do that I was doing the best I could and and work to kind of let go of any unjustified guilt we might be feeling I mentioned at the beginning Dr. Jan that you're a child adolescent and family psychologist and we've talked about adults a lot people don't talk about kids that much because they seem for the most part kind of sailing through this in terms of illness but no school can't have friends over, no after-school extracurricular activities, mom and dad visibly worried about themselves and their jobs, very worried about grandma and grandpa. As far as we know, how are the kids doing? You know, kids are, are kind of pushing through and struggling. I think that so many young people are losing their normal too, right? So they're seeing the worry in their houses. Their normal is no longer there. They're not going to school. Depending on the age of them, are they losing milestone moments? Um, rituals that they would expect to be having this year. So there's a lot of loss and grief for them as well. And I think we need to cut them a little bit of slack. They're learning how to do this new normal, quote unquote, and 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 we all have to help them navigate it too. And I think for parents, it's a challenge because they're struggling with how do I work from home? How do I make sure I keep my job? How do I make sure my kids are doing their schoolwork? How do I make sure my kids are okay? And all of us collectively kind of need to exhale and take a breath and recognize we're just doing the best we can and, and be supportive of one another. What do we tell people in relationships? Because even people who believe they have great relationships sometimes find them tested by the 24-7-ness of this and find that assumptions they had about what the other person likes, doesn't like, is comfortable with, all of that may not be quite what they imagined. We are definitely learning more about our partners and family members than we may ever have wanted to know. Um, that is true. I think you know, and that could be a really good thing. You know, it could strengthen a lot of relationships. It could help work through a lot of relationships. I think we all need to give each other a pass at different times that any sort of argument, you know, we might have an argument over who's doing the dishes tonight. And could it be about more than that, right? Our morbidity, the illness, are we all going to be okay? So there's so many multi-layered issues going on at the same time. And I think what we are seeing that's of concern is, you know, increases in domestic violence, increases in child abuse. And it's very important for people to know that resources do still exist, even if shelters might be harder to get to and to reach out to those resources when needed. Nightmares. I'm hearing a lot. Of course, this is anecdotal at this point. It's not that anybody's had time to do a study on this, but a lot of people are having more nightmares, stranger dreams. A lot of the things that maybe we don't want to think about during our conscious hours are working themselves out at night. It has consequences because a lot of people are not getting a normal good night's sleep, especially since they're not exhausted by work, but maybe exhausted more by psychological things. Are, are you hearing any of that? I am, and, and and was just reading about this too, that although we are home more and you'd think potentially could get more rest because we don't have long commutes and we don't have those kinds of things, we're not getting great and solid sleep. So we're just feeling more on edge. And to your point, we do kind of quiet our minds when we lay down. We're not distracted. So a lot of our anxiety comes down the second we kind of get into bed, we have some racing thoughts. And then anxiety comes out in our dreams all the time. So kind of part of this, I like to recommend for people who really get worried as they're getting to bed because it's the first time they're quiet, 
is to take a couple minutes and kind of run through all the worry thoughts and be like, there's not, you know, what can I do about any of these things right now? If the answer is nothing, do some meditative breathing and allow yourself to go to sleep. Um, and you know, the rules are different. If you're really tired in the middle of the day and you can catch a 15 minute cat nap, then allow yourself that as well. Final thing. Is there something that people should be on the lookout for or something that may especially help people in these times that we should be hearing about? I think that we use the term social distancing and it really just means physically. And I think one of the most important things we have to look out for is loneliness. And in isolation, loneliness spikes. And we know loneliness can be a huge trigger to anxiety and depression for many people. So even though you cannot be close to people, you need to be connected to people. And I think that however you do that, calling them, using any sort of video conferencing, whatever, you know, doing a drive-by and a wave, whatever it can be to make that connection in person really can be a protective factor for all of us. Yeah, we really should call it physical distancing, shouldn't we? Social distancing is probably the last thing we need right now. Exactly. It's really the wrong terminology and we get what they mean, but I think it it implies not, you know, not connecting when in fact this is a time connection matters more than ever. Dr. Jennifer Hartstein is a Yahoo mental health contributor and a psychologist in New York City. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. Welcome back to Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Let's talk about first responders and what they're going through. Often their jobs are dangerous enough, whether it's gunfire for police or flames for firefighters. Now we have something that you cannot fight by overwhelming it with force or dousing it with water, something you can't see at all. In New York City, 20% of the police force is ill. Several officers have died of COVID-19. Firefighters and emergency medical technicians are overwhelmed. Anthony Almagera is vice president of the New York City EMS Officers Union and a paramedic himself. And this is what he told CBS National Correspondent David Begno. I've never seen 7,000 calls in EMS. To give you some perspective, that's more than 9-11. So basically, we've had 9-11 type calls for about eight days now. More than 1,000 firefighters and EMT workers are infected in New York City alone. Lillian Bonsignor is the chief EMS operator for the city's fire department. She says this is what they're telling callers. If you are not seriously sick, if you are not having a true emergency, stay home. Save 911 for those true emergencies. Paramedic Megan Pfeiffer gave CBS News a running diary of a day at work in Queens. We are hit with an assignment. So first assignment that we're heading to for the day is a cardiac condition with somebody having a fever and cough. By the time we get to them, it's to the point where they're basically crashing. A lot of them are getting intubated as soon as they walk through those ER doors. Put this on your face. It's pretty much like battlefields triage. Give me that other tank. There's a lot of hospitals that are running low on oxygen tanks and only have the big ones. They're sharing ventilators. Like We've never seen anything like this before. Right now, it's patient after patient that's really sick and really, we're taking them in there to die. There's no visitors allowed, so when we take them, that might be the last time that they see them. The people that aren't on ventilators are literally waiting for somebody to die so they can get on a vent. Past 1 a.m. and I am self-quarantining to avoid any potential exposure. And so I'm worried about my family. I'm worried about my friends. If anything ever happened to them, I, I wouldn't want to feel responsible. It would. I just couldn't deal with that guilt. 
And let's talk about those EMT workers. Even in New York, though they are constantly saving lives and exposed to illness, they make much less than firefighters. And nationally, it's worse than that. The average pay for an EMT worker in this country is $16 an hour, or about what a crew leader may make at a fast food restaurant. Many are volunteer operations, and though that by itself is a wonderful thing, it also brings down what many counties and towns are willing to pay for the job. And many low-paid EMT workers have second jobs, so they often hop in the ambulance dog-tired. Moreover, and this may surprise you, along with the low pay, many of the people coming to your house and taking care of you, even if you have a contagious and deadly disease, have no health insurance. In some places, things are so bad, job openings are posted, and no one even applies. As for what they see, and all the times they just can't help somebody they get to, and the depression that can cause, a study by Eastern Kentucky State University shows that emergency workers as a group have five times the national suicide rate. It seems that a group society most depends on, especially at a time when they are most vulnerable, may not be able to depend on society. This has been Coronavirus, Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.